Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Donald Gray Barnhouse. After high school, Barnhouse enrolled in Biola Bible Institute of Los Angeles. He studied doctrine with Reuben Archer Torrey, and he did personal work with Thomas Corwin Horton. Today, Dr. Barnhouse presents a sermon on Romans 8, 28. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy grace and faithfulness, and rejoice that thou art our God. Thou dost rule and overrule, and all things are under thy control, whether the forces of nature or of men, angels or demons. Thou hast thine eternal purpose in this hour, and we pray thee that thou shalt use thy word to thine honor and glory. Bless each listening heart. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, even to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now we have established in our previous study that God has a definite plan and that all things are working in accordance with that plan. How could it be otherwise then than that all things should work together for our good if we are the called according to the divine purpose. There is a simple anecdote which illustrates this truth. Small boys are always interested in finding out what makes things go. One time there was a boy who took a clock apart to find out what made it tick. When he tried to put it together again, he seemed to have enough wheels and springs to make two clocks, and he discovered that it was necessary to have all of the parts moving in their proper way in order to make the clock go. Now in a clock, there are wheels that move forward, and there are wheels that move backward. There are wheels that move quickly, and wheels that move slowly. There is the large mainspring, and there is the tiny hairspring. But all of the parts work together to make the clock go. Now the life of a Christian is like that. There are events that move forward, and we're very pleased with such progress. And then there are events that move backward, and we're inclined to be impatient and want them to move forward in the direction of our own will, not understanding the purpose that God has in our lives. There are matters that are great and very important to us, mainspring events in our lives, births, marriages, deaths, triumphs, tragedies. Then there are matters that are as fine as a hairspring petty annoyances, trivial happenings, things that seem little and unimportant at times, but which regulate the course of our lives. There are events in our lives that move smoothly and rapidly, and we rejoice at their action. And there are things that lag and incite our impatience as we seek to speed them up to the tempo of our own will. But when all of these events, backwards, forward, fast, slow, great, small, are seen in their relationship to each other, we must conclude that to those who love God and who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. Our lives are not the haphazard result of the moving of blind chance. 
All that comes to pass in our lives is according to the eternal plan of the all-wise, all-powerful, and all-loving Father. When we understand this, we will never be moved by the argument that some people have that what we believe in is fatalism. Fatalism comes from blind chance, but the divine plan comes from the mind and heart of the all-loving Father. It is for this reason that we are well assured that everything helps to secure the good of those who love God, those whom he has called in fulfillment of his design. Among the important lessons in this text, there is one which we will consider here, namely the fact that believers may know that all things in life work together for our good. This text is one which divides men, even as Christ announced that the gospel would be a divider of men. There are those in this world who do not love God and who have not been called according to God's purpose. The events of life do not work together for their good. It is a sad fact, but the Bible teaches us plainly that those who are not born again are ruled in their daily lives by the flesh and by Satan, and that events which occur for them are according to the will of Satan. There are several verses which shed light on this teaching of the Word of God. In 1 John 5, 19, for example, we read, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. The Revised Standard Version is closer to the Greek in rendering it, We know that we are of God, and the whole world is in the power of the evil one. The possessing power must be personalized. It is the evil one who has authority over those whom the Bible calls the world. The verb is an intense one. The King James Version gives one aspect of the verb by showing that the world lies in the wicked one. The revision gives another aspect by showing that the world is in the power of the wicked one. The original verb used in classical Greek is for a man lying supinely in the embrace of a harlot. Under her power, because of the domination of his lust, the full idea would have to, have to be rendered in a paraphrase. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is lying in the power of the seductive embrace of the evil one. Then again, speaking of the attitude of the teacher of the word of God toward those who do not know the truth, the Holy Spirit says that Satan's will dominates the lives of false teachers. We read in Paul's epistle to Timothy, have nothing to do with stupid, senseless controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, an apt teacher, forbearing, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth, and that they may escape from the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. That's a combination of the Revised Standard Version and the King James Version. Now we see then that the unsaved teacher of religion is the captive of Satan, that he moves according to Satan's will. For the unsaved then, all things work together for ill, because they do not love the Lord, because they are lying in the lap of the wicked one, resting supinely in his embrace, captives of his will. But the fact that a man has been chosen according to God's eternal purpose immediately surrounds him with the protective care of the Holy Spirit. 
Nothing can touch us until it has passed through the will of God. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. We learn from the Gospels that the devil was so subject to the word of Christ that his demons could not touch a herd of swine until they secured permission from the Savior. We learn from the book of Job that the devil could not touch Job's family and property till he received permission from God. When he had acted under this permission, he sought still further permission to touch Job personally. He was granted the right to touch his body with boils, but not the power to take his life. Thus we learn that no power of evil can touch one who loves the Lord and who has been called according to the divine purpose. This is a negative reason, but a very important one, why all things must work together for our good. There are many doctrines that are bound up in our text, and the ramifications of it can take us back into the eternal decrees of God through the explanation of his purpose, or forward into heaven through a discussion of the ultimate good and the ultimate purpose. But beyond all the doctrines that are linked with this text, there is the very practical truth that we may have today the absolute assurance that the plan of our own individual life has been fixed in God, that he is pursuing a definite purpose, leading to a definite end, and that we may live in quiet assurance that all is well with us, even though we are passing through deep waters. We know that is the tremendous fact of this verse. If all things work together for our good without our knowing it, it would be a wonderful fact, and we would find it out later. But it is possible here and now for us to know that all things work together for our good. To lay hold upon this fact is to calm the turbulence of life and to bring quiet and confidence into the whole of the life. Nothing can touch me unless it passes through the will of God. God has a plan for my life. God is working according to a fixed eternal purpose. Now, this possible knowledge of the purpose of God and its effect for good in our lives does not come to us all at once. When the life of God enters into a soul, there are the seeds of assurance for the future. But that assurance is not always present in its ripe form. There is growth from babyhood in Christ to maturity in him. One of the characteristics of spiritual maturity is the entrance into the possession of assurance as to our position in Christ and the safety that is ours in that position and the knowledge that each passing event of life is a part of the Father's plan. As we look back over the past events of our life, we can be sure that we have been led according to a divine plan. The tangled skein of events, the successes, yes, and the failures have been a part of his purpose for us, leading us to an ever-increasing distrust of ourselves and an ever-deepening confidence in him. As we look out upon our present circumstances, we can be assured that we are exactly where our Father wishes us to be. It was he who decided that we were to be man or woman, tall or short, brunette, blonde, redhead, or bald-headed. It was he who determined our IQ, 
and put us in the income tax bracket in which we find ourselves. It was he who planned our sicknesses, our trials, and our sorrows. It was he who measured our joys, our triumphs, and our satisfaction. If we have kicked against the pricks, if we have struggled in our minds against the events of life, it is because we have not understood what he is planning to do for us and in us. Look up at this moment from the place you are, the furniture in your house, the kind of car you are driving, the loved ones around you, what you see in the mirror as you look at yourself. All was planned by God and is working for your good. This does not mean in the slightest measure that you are to lie down and consider yourself as a puppet on a string. You have been given when you were born again a new life in Christ. Your broken will, which was crushed in Adam's fall, has been restored to you in the regeneration. And it is God's plan for you that you live and act and move as becomes a child of God who is destined for amazing things throughout all eternity. Whatever comes to your hand, you're to do with all your might what your hand finds to do. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not as unto man. And if there's any Christian who says, well, everything is planned, so I'll just lie down and roll over, you may be sure of the fact that you are not living as a Christian and that God will have to break you in that portion of your life. Now, you are at present enrolled in the school of training for your eternal position with Christ. Heaven does not consist of polishing a crown, strumming a harp, and singing hymns forever. In John 17, 4, we read this is life eternal, that we may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. We are to be, as we read in Ephesians 1, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The attitude that we are to have at the present moment is that of great joy that we have been loved. We should be in the frame of mind of the girl who has just closed the door after saying good night to her lover who has put the diamond upon her finger that she is wearing for the first time. She looks at the light sparkling from its depths and knows that new horizons are opening before her, that she is loved, and that she is to be taken out of her present circumstances. My illustration falls down at this point, for she may have some slight doubts as to her human future, which holds so much of the unknown, but we can have no doubts whatsoever about our spiritual future since we are to be joined forever to the eternal Son of God. The believer in Christ, who has begun to enter into the truth of this text, becomes detached from life, while at the same time he becomes intensely involved with all of life as it comes. He looks upon the passing events as though he were seeing them from another world. He knows that they have been designed, calculated, and fashioned by the loving Father to fit just the particular needs of his life. He can face each event, whether of triumph or disaster, as though he were looking at the life of a stranger. Paul spoke of the great sweep of events in life and said, none of these things move me. Now do not think for a moment that I'm teaching that the believer is to drift off into some ethereal other worldliness that will alienate him from the currents of activity in the life of our town and our century. Far from it. 
The believer who comes to realize that all things are working together for good for him because he has been loved of God and called according to the divine purpose is the one who is the most active in the work that God has given him to do. If you really understand what I am saying, you will turn from your radio when this time of meditation is done and you will go to do with all of your might what your hand finds to do. Sometimes people ask me how I find time to do so much work. I suppose it's because I am so thoroughly convinced of certain Bible truths. I believe that I have been put here on earth and saved through Jesus Christ in order to witness for him until the moment when he shall take me to be with himself. He decided that I should be a man, well over six feet tall, with the mind that I possess and the other talents which he has given me. I did not choose any of it. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven, we read in John 3, 27. I am to take the talents which he has given me and put them to active use. The working rules for my life have been laid down. Above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever your task, work heartily, as serving the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now it is in the light of this that I have organized my life. When I rise in the morning, I've taught myself to awake with the words of a hymn of praise on my lips. When morning gilds the skies, my heart awaking cries, may Jesus Christ be praised. Alike at work and prayer to Jesus I repair, may Jesus Christ be praised. Now, if I know there are 40 things to do, I do not concern myself as to whether I can do them all. There is one thing that has to be done first. Let's get started on it. If it is slow in the doing, nothing matters if I know I have done my best in working on it. And when the first item is done, the next is taken up. I know that worry is sin, for it means that I'm not trusting the Lord and resting in him. Thou dost keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. Now it has become almost automatic with me when I pronounce the benediction at the close of a service to think about my next appointment for speaking. My mind works something like this. I'm to speak tomorrow at 10 and my subject is, for example, the second chapter of Galatians. It's all prepared, so rest easy. Then I may consider the most pressing thing that is to, to be written, one of these radio sermons or an editorial for our magazine Eternity, or some work on a TV script, or the mind may move on to some social engagement that is to take place. A group of young people are to meet at someone's house for fellowship, and probably for questions on the Word of God. And while it is possible to get tired in the Lord's work, it is not possible to get tired of the Lord's work. He planned it, and the only thing I have to do is to face the next, and only the next event, and do it with all my might. What is the use of thinking three events ahead when the Lord might return before that could happen? But what if two things press to be done at once? A prayer is breathed to ask the Lord for guidance, and there will always come some little indication that will lead to the performing of one before the other. And without the slightest care as to what might happen if the other did not get done. We are not indispensable. If death should claim me, the Lord's work would go on. There would not be a single church service skipped. 
There would not be one phase of witness left undone. Even my death will be a part of the all things that are working together for good to them that love the Lord and who are the called according to his purpose. And what is true of me in my ministry is true of you in your ministry, your life. Your work may not be sermons and editorials and personal interviews. Your work may be a pile of dishes, a basket of stockings to darn, a wash to do, a floor to sweep. Look up to the Lord and say to him in awesome wonder, Thou didst plan this broom for me for this instant, and I am to clean as though thou wouldst look in the corners. Or thou didst plan this evening at home for me, when I would rather have gone somewhere for a change of the social scene. How is it possible for a believer in Christ to have a single frustration when we know what our Heavenly Father is doing for us, in us, and through us? Finally, as we may know with full assurance that the events of the past and the circumstances of the present are working together for our good, so we may look into the future with perfect complacency because we know that nothing can touch us that has not been planned for our good. In the first place, we do not know whether we have much of what is called future. We may die, that we know. But even more sure than death is the fact of the second coming of Christ. C.S. Lewis has written, The doctrine of the second coming teaches us that we do not and cannot know when the world drama will end. The curtain may be rung down at any moment, say before you have finished reading this paragraph. This seems to some people intolerably frustrating. So many things would be interrupted. Perhaps you were going to get married next month. Perhaps you were going to get a raise next week. You may be on the verge of a great scientific discovery. You may be maturing great social and political reforms. Surely no good and wise God would be so very unreasonable as to cut all this short. Not now of all moments. But we think thus because we keep on assuming that we know the play. We do not know the play. We do not know even whether we are in Act 1 or Act 5. We do not know who are the major and who are the minor characters. The author knows. The audience, if there is an audience, if angels and archangels and all the company of heaven fill the pit and the stalls, the audience may have an inkling. But we, never seeing the play from outside, never meeting any characters except the tiny minority who are on in the same scenes as ourselves, wholly ignorant of the future and very imperfectly informed about the past, we cannot tell at what moment the end ought to come. That it will come when it ought, we may be sure. But we waste our time in guessing when that will be. That it has a meaning, we may be sure. But we cannot see it. When it is over, we may be told. We are led to expect that the author will have something to say to each of us on the part that each of us has played. The playing it well is what matters infinitely. Now, such an appraisal of the future comes from a realization of the truth of our text. It is when we know that all things are working together for our good, according to an eternal plan, that we can be confident concerning the past, calm concerning the present, and joyful concerning the future. All is in the heart and hand of our Father. And thus we pray, our God and Father, that the Holy Spirit shall take the message to each heart. Thou knowest, Lord our God, all of the changes in our life, the dullness in some lives, the activity in others, the frustrations, the frenzies. 
But whatever it may be, we pray thee that thou shalt calm thy people, that thou shalt give them to walk humbly before thee, in the confidence and full assurance of faith, of knowing that thou art at the helm, that thou art on the throne, that thou art both the director and the governor of everything that touches us. Thus give us that quiet confidence and rest in thee that shall enable us to live as those who are alive from the dead and who walk in the sweet assurance of the knowledge that all things, all things work together for our good because we love thee and because we are the called according to thy purpose. Hear us, we pray thee, for we ask these things in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.